Father, what a truth that is. That where our sins abound, your grace abounds all the more. Father, we thank you that as the scriptures teach us, there's a good work that you have begun in each of us that you will bring to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That those of us who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, that we are assured of greater things. And in that way of thinking, Lord, we know that this world we live in today is not our home. We know that this world filled with brokenness and great frustrations, this is not the last word. And those of us who have the Holy Spirit, we are groaning inwardly, as Romans 8 says, as we anticipate eagerly, as we look for with great anticipation the dawning of our final and full salvation, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And until that day, Lord, we have the privilege as a church to lift up our needs and to and to inquire of you, to put our supplications and requests before you on behalf of the world in which we live. And for that, Lord, we do so today, we ask. God, we ask on behalf of people in our world and our church, those of us gathered in this place, that you would be attentive to our prayers. As we enter into a season of growing darkness, winter and with the holidays before us, there's a great many people who have chronic loneliness who feel completely isolated and alone. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be their comforter. God, that you would be present with them, that you would aid and assist them in all that they do. And Lord, for those who have chronic suffering of various kinds, whether it's depression, anxiety, or physical maladies of illness and sickness of various kinds, we ask, Lord, that you would be the healer. God, that you would come alongside of these folks and you would grant to them all that they need to either be healed of their ailments or to be strengthened and fortified to withstand and persevere in the midst of them. God, grant to them all that they need. And those who struggle, Lord, with whatever mustard seed of faith they have, they perhaps lack assurance, they perhaps perhaps feel as though they're living under a a cloud of judgment and condemnation, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to be the life-giving righteousness that they so need. God, show them that you are enough. All those in our world, Lord, victims of natural disasters and destruction and hunger and poverty and injustice of various kinds and oppression, victims of war and terrorism, Lord Jesus, we ask, that you would be the restoration we need. Provide redemption, God. Provide reconciliation. Provide all that is needed. So in all these circumstances and many other things we could pray for, Lord, we ask that you hear our prayers now, that you would grant to us in great measure all that we need to be your hands and feet in this world, to be your salt and light, to be the church. So grant to us, Lord, on behalf of your will, glory, supplication of, uh, and, and supply of grace, God, grant to us all that we need as we look joyfully to what awaits us, hope in our hearts of the new heavens and new earth where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more injustice, a place in which righteousness dwells. And we pray these things through Jesus Christ for his glory and our joy. Amen. Amen. Ah. Oh.
Good to see you all. Good morning, church. We were, we were wondering how many of you all would actually show up given the storm that is raging all around us and uh, whether or not many of you have posted things over the last 2021 and 2020 about the church must gather no matter what if you are men and women of consistency and you have showed up with rain jackets and umbrellas to show that you are indeed men and women of consistency. All right, that was very dramatic. Uh, I'm gonna be talking about baptism. We're gonna explore baptism and its meaning and significance in the life of the local church. And I had some goofy joke that I, I'm so grateful the Lord stopped me from uh, saying at the first service because it was like, rain's outside and you know, like baptism everywhere. And I realized that will be counter productive so I, I stayed away from that so anyways I know it's wet and, and dreary outside but Lord willing uh, we're getting the rain we need and many of us have been praying for rain and so we're grateful to the Lord for bringing it um, let you know about a couple quick things one is that uh, today we have our uh, quarterly business meeting at two o'clock uh, that means the expectation is our members would be there and also if you're not a member that you're more than welcome to come and see what happens there we are going to be introducing um, and welcoming to membership 24 new new members so that's exciting um, we're going to introduce uh, a new elder candidate lisa and diego We'll have a financial update from Pastor Glenn Evans, and we'll have a few other things that we're going to talk about. Um, we'll give an update on the whole plaza shade structure. Remember we talked about that? Yeah. Um, working with the city proves to be less uh, smooth and ideal as we would like. That's okay. Politically correct enough. All right. So. Uh, yeah, so, so we're on our way with some of that kind of stuff. So um, Caring Hands is available. That means if you have uh, kids and you would like um, some childcare, we do have that available, but you do need to go through our resource email and uh, request a spot, and spots uh, fill up really quickly. So that's today at 2 o'clock, and I uh, want to make sure that you are there. Don't worry, the 49ers don't play until 5. <laughs> and who cares about the Raiders? So the last thing, I get more of a rise on football than I get out of other things with you. That's okay. Um, next week, I want to let you know too this. Next week is uh, October 31st, and that means it is Reformation Day. That's right. And so we are celebrating uh, by having our Harvest Carnival. We are in need of about eight to 10 more cars, which means we would love if, if you're a two-car family uh, and you have two drivers, like bring both. Um, we just need a, a couple more cars and we need a, a little bit more candy. And a little bit more is a lot, like we need a lot more. Um, you may have seen the picture of Pastor David on social media, buried in a mound of candy. And uh, yeah, so we need a little bit more because we still see his face. We want to cover that whole thing up. And uh, so we need a little more candy on that. Um, and I want to let you know too that um, we, we typically observe the Lord's Supper uh, once a month, usually the first Sunday of every month. Uh, we're going to change that up because we're gonna take, uh, we're gonna observe the Lord's Supper on the 31st, which I know is just a mere few hours away from November. But we're doing that for twofold. Number one, it's close enough to November. Uh, the second reason is because next week, um, the sermon is on the Lord's Supper. And that would be weird <laughs> to preach on it and be like, all right, well, we'll, we'll do this next week and uh, come back for part two. But so we're gonna observe the Lord's Supper together as it's preached. Um, so we combine those two. So just give you a heads up on that. 
All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to take it, open it up to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at the baptizing church, the baptizing church. Many of you know I had a dream to play professional baseball. Uh, Many of you know that that dream came crashing down when I crashed into a fence when I was running full speed into it, knocked myself unconscious, broke some bones and some ligaments and whatnot, and was never the same again. And uh, it was tragic for me. Uh, It was like, you know, as a little boy, you just want to play professional baseball and you're getting carted off the field and you realize, uh, yeah, that's gone. And so I remember being kind of aimless, feeling a bit lost after college. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. Um, And so I went and worked for the city of Fairfield and I was a, a specialist in the street division, which is a fancy way of saying that they put me inside the storm drains with a giant like vacuum cleaner that was like huge and I would just go in there and suck up whatever was in there. Like you got like dead raccoons, you got possum. It just was gross, right? And you're just in there and you're watching this thing. You're like, oh, Um, it's bad. So I did that for a while and then I got a phone call in the same week I think it was, if my memory serves me uh, correctly, I got a phone call from a church in Roseville that was calling me to be their middle school pastor. Believe it or not, I was actually a middle school pastor, wasn't very good at it, but they called me nonetheless. And, uh, and so I had an opportunity and I was like, okay, this is what the Lord has. But also, I think that was that same week, the Fullerton Flyers, they are a team in an independent baseball uh, league and they're professional baseball. They, con- they called me and they were offering me a contract. And uh, they were surprised I hadn't signed already, and so they put it out there. So I called Heather. I was in the parking lot. I called Heather, and I was like, hey, this just just happened. What do you think I should do? And I think she was kind of confused why I was even asking. She's like, what does the Lord have to do to help you realize you're not supposed to play baseball? Like, uh, I don't know what else God is going to do to you. So I advise you, say no. So I I think they, yeah, they faxed me, faxed. I don't know if young people, you know what a fax is, but uh, they faxed a contract to me and I kept it uh, just for like a memento, you know. I don't know where it's at, but it's somewhere. Um, But anyways, I have this contract sitting somewhere in a box, probably somewhere. And I realized that this contract means absolutely nothing. And the reason why it means absolutely nothing is because it has no endorsing signatures on it. Uh, The organization didn't endorse it and I didn't sign it and therefore it's just a piece of paper and it lacks any substance. There's no effect it has on my life. And we all know as a culture, society today, any contract is binding only if there are signatures. Because signatures are a way of confirming commitments. So if you make a commitment, how do I know you're going to follow through with it? Well, you're going to sign something. Or you're going to hit I agree on a button and lie about you read it all. Either way. So we know that there's something that verifies, validates commitments. Let me ask this question. God has made a bunch of commitments to us, has he not? He has. Promises. He's made in his word evident that he is committed to us. My question is this. Is there anything that we can kind of bank on in which God has not only made commitments but has confirmed them by way of signature? Is there anything God has given to us that acts as though it's his signature to say, I promise this stuff, but I don't merely promise it. I promise to actually come through. And here's my signature to prove it. Rainbows. Rainbows. That's good. 
That's exactly it. It's signs of a covenant. There are things that we do or that we are commanded to do because they are in enacting them, observing them, they are God's signature. Two such examples are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are times in which God reminds us not only of his commitments, but he reminds us that he is signed on the dotted line and he is for you and he will come through for you. Guaranteed. These two activities are called ordinances because they're ordained by God. Some Christian traditions call it sacraments. And uh, we uh, typically call them ordinances as uh, a church. They are things that Jesus has ordained for us to do in order to be strengthened by God's grace through faith. They serve functionally as a kind of symbolic signature on a contract or a covenant between us and God. How do I know, God, that it's not mere words? How do I know that you will come through in reality? And so God gives us not only promises, but his signature. I will come through. Be baptized. Observe the Lord's Supper. Here's what Tim Chester says. He's a theologian in the UK. He says, a covenant promise, the covenant promises God makes to us in the gospel are signed and sealed with water, bread, and wine. Now, I want to make sure you're not offended by the word wine there. We're Baptists, so we'll say juice. But it's wine nonetheless. Uh, The signature doesn't add any new content to the promises, but it does seal and confirm those promises. He goes on to say, in the preaching of the gospel, God gives us the promise of forgiveness in a form we can hear. It comes in the form of words. But in the ordinances, God also gives us the promise of forgiveness in a form we can see and touch and even taste. The water, bread, and wine are added as confirmations of the reality of God's promise. Here is God's promise in physical form so that we can see it as well as hear it. We can taste it as well as read it. There is something important about the tangible way in which we baptize and observe the Lord's Supper. That's one reason why when we uh, observe the Lord's Supper, I always encourage you to take that little piece of bread in your hands and to look at it, feel it, and in a moment, eat it, taste it. This is real. What God does in baptism is he gives us truth you can touch. You actually get wet. And if the microphones are placed right, you can actually hear that water sloshing around. You can actually maybe get sprayed a little bit by the emerging out of the water. You can see it. It's right there. Baptism is one of the ways God signs his name to confirm the promises that he has made to us in the gospel. God, will you really forgive us? Yes. How do I know? Be baptized in my name. How do I know? Eat and drink in remembrance of me. So let's read about baptism in Romans 6, and we'll see how this connects verses 1 through 5. Here's the Apostle Paul. He writes this. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in bapt- by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, Romans 1 through 3 is an interesting part of Romans. 1 through 3 is Paul writing to the church in Rome, trying to convince them through argumentation that they are dirty, filthy, rotten sinners. And he does a pretty good job of that if you've ever read it. There's really no excuse. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of God's glorious standards. And there's really nothing you and your own power and, and resources can do about that. You're in big trouble. And then in verse four, uh, chapter 4, he introduces this concept of faith and how faith is the instrument through which righteousness comes to us. That is to say, you can have your sin and the guilt of your sin removed, and you can actually be declared righteous in the sight of God. And that happens through faith. And then in chapter five, he goes through and he works out the implications of faith. If you have faith, what might that look like in your life? And so he works that out in chapter five. He talks about how we have peace with God through faith and how God has demonstrated his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we learn more and more about the reality that Jesus not only died for our sins, but rose for our justification. And then there, at the end of the chapter, there's this amazing sentence about how the sin of uh, our sins increase because of God's law. That is to say, the more we know about God's law, the more you realize how short you fall from meeting God's law. But then he says, as much as your sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And so we just sang a song about your mercy is more. We could easily say your grace is more. See, as much as our sin increases, God's mercy and grace exceeds it. And bountifully, abundantly so. Now when we talk about all this grace and mercy, there were some people who were listening to Paul's teaching and the explanation of the gospel and they're thinking to themselves, if you prioritize and talk about grace and mercy as much as you do, it's gonna make people think that they can just go around sending their brains out because after all, God has to forgive you anyways. And so what happens is people will begin to think that grace is a license to sin. Now that grace is made available to you, well, now I can just go sin, who cares? I'm free to sin. And that's kind of the background behind verse one where Paul says, what shall we say then with this abounding Endless grace and mercy, what shall we say then? Paul's anticipating his objectors. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are you saying that Jesus died in order to give us guilt-free sin opportunities? And he goes on to say in verse two, by no means, or loosely translated, are you out of your mind? What is wrong with you? And he goes on to say this, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Don't you understand that part of God's grace is to give to undeserving sinners life? 
And don't you understand that mercy is when God withholds the judgment that you deserve? And if you are a recipient of such unblushing promises of God's grace and mercy, why would you spurn that by just going out and living as though it didn't exist, this thing called forgiveness, grace, and mercy? Why would you go and live your life as though God hasn't forgiven you, that grace isn't powerful, that mercy isn't yours, that you aren't delivered from sin? Why would you do that? And then he says in verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So what Paul does in verse three is he asks this question, if you wanna deal with your sin, if you want to finally understand the importance of grace and how it fleshes out in your own life and you wanna walk in a way that is obedient and glorifying to God, Why in the world have you forgotten the fact that you've been baptized? Or in other words, the positive way in which we deal with sin and stuff is to remember, I've been baptized. What in the world am I doing? My baptism preaches to me the necessity of killing sin and living to Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul brings it up in verse three. Don't you realize that we've been baptized? Have you forgotten that you have claimed the name of Christ as your own? Don't you realize that you now identify with his death? Which means you also identify with his life? What in the world are you doing living in sin? We should be living a baptized life, not a sinful life. So now I wanna look at what Paul says here and, and, and start to flesh out kind of the application for us, which is to say, Paul understands as he writes to the church in Rome, as he says, don't you know that we who are baptized have died to sin? He knows that there are baptized Christians in the church. He knows that because what it means to be a Christian is to be baptized. And so he's like, don't you know, you Christians, don't you know what our baptism signifies? Individually, you? But then also there's this language of we, do you see it? We who have been baptized or all of us who have been baptized. And so there's this communal church-wide kind of experience. And so there's individual and there is communal, church-wide. And what's happening in baptism is a proclamation. That is to say, when people get baptized, the individual believer being baptized is making a public proclamation, I'm with Jesus. I'm identifying with Jesus and his people. And there's a second proclamation happening at the same time, and we all know this, because nobody baptizes themselves. You don't just sit in the shower and go, wait a minute, oh, all right, I'm baptized, woo! Or sitting in a tub and you're like, I should be baptized. And you just slide under the water. Or you walk outside in in the rain, I'm baptized. No, somebody has to do that to you. You notice that? There is somebody acting and there's somebody who's passive. There's somebody who's doing the action and somebody receiving the action. 
which means in proclamation or in baptism, there's a proclamation by the individual who is being baptized and there's a proclamation by the one baptizing. And the one who is baptizing is the one who is proclaiming that this individual believer is one of us. And I'll explain that in a second. But first, let's talk about the individual believer, how they are proclaiming their faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And in doing so, they're receiving a new identity. Let me say that again. When an individual believer gets baptized, they are really publicly proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus and his people, and they're receiving a new identity. Here's how it fleshes out kind of for us in Acts chapter 2. And what I'm going to do is show us a a lot from scriptures of of how baptism works out. So we'll start in in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter preaches this amazing sermon about God's eternal plan of redemption through Jesus' death and resurrection. The people hear it, man. They're convicted and they're like, what do we do, Peter? How do we respond to this? And he says to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We jump down to verse 41. And it was those who received Peter's word to be baptized and repent. These people were baptized. These these people were, they they took his admonition, they took his command, and and so they were baptized. And and look what happens. They were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. In this moment, these people repent, they're baptized, and immediately they begin to identify as the church. Now, if you notice, repent and be baptized, what is left out in that is faith. You notice Peter didn't say you should believe. Why not? Well, let me go to another text, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. And here, uh, Philip is going out and he's preaching into the areas of Samaria. And as he's preaching the gospel, there is a bunch of people who believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And those people who believed Philip were baptized, both men and women. Now in this text, what is missing? Repentance. So the question is, should we repent and be baptized? Or should we believe and be baptized? And the answer is yes. We should repent and believe and be baptized. The reason why we should think this way is because of what is called um, synecdoche. Synecdoche. It's a, a big word. It's a figure of speech in which a part stands for the whole or a whole stands for the part. So when you hear repent, believe, and be baptized, that's three parts, but it really is one thing. And what is that one thing? Believe, repent, or repent, believe, and be baptized, or repent, believe, be baptized, however that works out. What is the one thing? It's to publicly be identified as a Christian. That's the one thing. And so it's a synecdoche. Let me put it in different terms. If some of you ask me for lunch, out me out to lunch, you're like, hey, you want to go grab some lunch, Pastor Phil? I'm like, all right, man, let's go. But then you ask me in this way, hey, you want to go break bread? I would know exactly what you're talking about. I would know that what you mean is breaking bread is just like, it's, it's, it's a placeholder for the whole thing called a meal. Like, 
and hopefully you take me to sushi. So <laughs> I know you don't mean physically, do you just wanna break bread? We won't eat it, we'll just break it. I know what you mean. At the same time, when we take communion, we say this meal, and some of you go, this meal, it's a cracker, it's a small cracker. Why are you calling this a meal? And we're saying because this little thing represents a whole bunch of other things. And so it's a synecdoche. It's something which stands for the whole or stands for the parts. And so when you read, repent, believe, and be baptized, it's all-inclusive. It simply is an identity marker. It's when you go public that you are a Christian. And what I would say is, if any of those three elements are missing, then those of us who are in the public have every reason in the world to question whether or not you're a Christian. And I know right now you're like, wait a minute. That's right. Email Boley at Golden Hills. <laughs> Let me show you why baptism isn't central to this. It's, and it's because baptism is an identity marker. It identifies who you are. It's a place in which you come to know the, the answer to the question, who am I? And so we read about this baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The apostle Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our forefathers, that's what it means there, were all under the cloud. If you know your Old Testament history, you understand the nation of Israel was led in the wilderness by a cloud and a pillar of fire. And so they were under the cloud. They were under the authority of God who was leading them. And that this nation of Israel, these forefathers, they all passed through the sea. Now what sea is he referring to? The Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses. What? What does that mean? The nation of Israel was all baptized into Moses. It was in the cloud and in the sea. So what's happening here is this. The nation of Israel was led out of bondage in the nation of Egypt by a man God raised up whose name was Moses. And the nation of Israel went out of Egypt, they went all the way to the edge of Egypt and they found themselves hindered from continuing on to the promised land by this body of water called the Red Sea. And until God parted the Red Sea because of Moses' staff, as you remember, and then they were led into the wilderness. Until that happened, the nation of Israel was kind of stuck. What do we do? And so for the rest of the Bible, what we understand is the parting of the Red Sea and the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt into the promised land is the key identity marker of what it means to be an Israelite. Everyone understands that. Whoa, the Exodus is significant. And what we also understand is the importance of Moses is not just that he led them through the sea, but there was also the cloud part. If you remember, Moses went up the hill, up the mountain, and at the top of the mountain was the cloud. And that's where God's presence was. And when Moses met with God up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, he was given what is called the law. And when he was given the law, it acted as a covenant. It is what is called the Mosaic Covenant. So God didn't interact with the people directly. He interacted with the people through Moses. Moses is called the covenant mediator. He is the one that stands between God and the people. And so when the people are called, or when Paul says that the people were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, he means 
that the nation of Israel identifies itself by two things. One is by the law, which is the Mosaic covenant, and also by the Exodus, which was led by Moses. So if you're baptized into Moses, that means you're identifying with the covenant mediator. Now let's go to Christian baptism. Those who are baptized into Christ are identifying themselves as being on Christ's team, so to speak. We're on team Jesus. I'm identifying with him. Why? Because he is the new covenant mediator. And being the new covenant mediator, when I am baptized into Jesus' name, I'm identifying with him, my allegiance, and I am also saying that that new identity makes me a participant of what is called the new covenant. I have a brand new identity. I understand myself in a completely new way. I am publicly proclaiming that I'm on team Jesus, that I'm a part of the new covenant. I have a new identity. I'm committed to Jesus and his people. The second proclamation is how the church proclaims an affirmation of the individual believer's faith and new identity. So basically what happens is, remember, none of us are get baptized by ourselves. The nation of Israel was baptized into Moses through the cloud and sea. We as Christians get baptized by who? Or at least we should. We should get baptized by other believers. But not just any believer, somebody with the authority of the church. Here's why. We'll go to Acts chapter 10. The apostle Peter is sent out to the Gentiles, specifically to a man named Cornelius and, the ho- and his household. He sends out a party invitation, a whole bunch of uh, Gentiles come to his house and they listen to Peter preach and Peter preaches about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says to him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still preaching these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had uh, come with Peter were amazed. That is the Jews, ethnic Jews, were amazed at what just happened. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles? You mean God wants to save not just Israel but the whole world? Yes. And they were amazed because they were hearing people speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, what's amazing about this is not only was was Peter sent to authoritatively preach Jesus, but then when the people believed, when they're like, we believe, boom, Holy Spirit, whoa, this is crazy. The next response is amazing. And that is, Peter commands them to be baptized. Think about this. Peter goes and preaches. The people give evidence of faith. And Peter says, well, the most logical thing to do next, I've got to baptize these people. So Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus. And then they asked him to remain for some days. It's quite amazing what just happened. Here is Peter authoritatively on behalf of God preaching the gospel, people believe, and the next logical thing that has to happen is Peter sees this faith coming to fruition and goes, all right, anybody here think that these people shouldn't be baptized? 
They're like, nah, man. Nah, man. We, we should baptize him. All right. Then I command you to be baptized. Do you see that? Verse 48. I command you to be baptized. Which means the apostle Peter is exercising the authority on behalf of the church, which was delegated to him by Jesus Christ, to then baptize people based on their profession of faith. And when that happens, basically what the church is doing through their authoritative representation is the church is declaring or proclaiming this person that just got baptized, they're one of us. We've tested them, we've evaluated them, they're in. And we are giving our stamp of approval. And when you are baptized, not only are you publicly uh, proclaiming that uh, you are aligning yourself with Team Jesus and his people and you have a new identity, but also the church is giving its stamp of approval that you are legit. You are a legit Christian. Because of that, everything changes. Everything changes. Your relationships completely change. Your relational associations will never be the same. Here's what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes, just as the body is one, talking about the church, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Why is that? Why are we one in Jesus? Well, because in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now the reason why I read this text is because we need to see that when you are baptized, it means that you are no longer on your own. When you are baptized, it says in verse 13, in one spirit we're all baptized into one body which means I'm no longer on my own, just kind of a renegade. When I'm baptized, I'm actually included into the body of Christ, which means everything is different. I'm no longer my own, I belong to Jesus, but also I belong to other people who are also in Jesus. And when you are baptized, you are marked as being part of the body of Christ, you are marked as being a part of the church, you are distinguished from those who are not in the church. You're marked off from the world. Who are God's people? These ones, the baptized ones. And who are not God's people? Well, presumably the non-baptized ones. Because there's really no other way to publicly proclaim your allegiance to Jesus apart from the way in which God ordained it, which is baptism. So there's another relational association which changes. Paul writes, for in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. You're all in this family through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all at one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what makes us a Christian is faith. But what identifies us as Christians is baptism. Because he says those who were baptized, verse 27, however many, whoever, whoever was baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. 
You wear the team jersey, so to speak. That's how we know who's who. Is because you put on Christ through baptism. What makes you a Christian is not your ethnicity, it's not your gender, it is not your social status. What makes you a Christian is your faith in Jesus publicly proclaimed by your baptism. And once you've been baptized, you put on team Jesus and you publicly are connecting to Christ and his people and you're clothed in him. So everything changes. And then the third one is this, is Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So we're not talking about a physical change to your body. We're talking about something made without hands, something done by the Spirit of God. And that you can read about that Romans 2.29. It's the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. And you, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ... That's what I believe circumcision of Christ means. It means when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to circumcise our hearts in order for us to believe and follow him. And then in verse 12, those who were received the Holy Spirit, those who are circumcised in their heart, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This text shows us the connection of what Christ has done and what happens when we are baptized. You see, Jesus died and rose again. Okay? And when we are baptized, look at verse 12, when we are baptized, we die with him, buried with him, and rise with him. It's being portrayed for your eyeballs to see. Just think about it. I'm on team Jesus. I identify with Jesus. I identify with his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension to new life. Okay? And I publicly proclaim I'm so aligned with Jesus. Watch. I'm going down in a death like his. I'm getting buried. And I rise from the dead. And so as people come out of the water, that's what happens, right? We're all like, woo! Because what's happening is a symbolism. What's happening is this person said, I identify with, with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then you get out of the water and you dry off. And part of you drying off and going and living your life is that you're trying to do Romans chapter 6, verse 4, which is you are now walking in newness of life, just as Jesus crawled out of the tomb and walked in newness of life. And so what we do in baptism is we identify symbolically with what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, session, and second coming. And so in that way, baptism is a portrayal of the gospel in the sense that when you watch a baptism, you're not just watching some dude you don't know or some woman you don't know get really wet. You're watching this person saying, I'm identifying with Team Jesus. His death is my death. His resurrection will one day be my resurrection. And his promise of new life is my reality today. And we all who are standing there watching this, yeah, we're saying, yes, we agree. You're one of us. You're legit. You're bona fide follower of Jesus. 
Now you watch my back and I'll watch yours. Marcus Peter Johnson, a theologian, he wrote this. He says, baptism is not something other than the gospel. It is the gospel in three-dimensional form. The experience and assurance of which we live for the rest of our lives. Baptism is God's promise that we have been saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And nothing will pluck you out of his hand. <laughs> Love it. More specifically, baptism portrays the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. When you watch a baptism, what's being portrayed to you is a reminder that you have sin-cleansing, life-giving, hope-producing power through the gospel living in you. That's what the, the baptism reminds you of. I got sin-cleansing. I got life-giving. I got hope-producing power living in me through the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say it this way, and this is going to be fun. I'm going to take you on a tour of the Bible, the whole thing. You're like, dude, these are already really long. I get it. But I want you to understand the significance of baptism and why it's significant for us as Christians to be baptized. And it's a full Bible kind of thing. So I'm going to start in Genesis 1. And we're going to connect this to Jesus' baptism. Remember when he got baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River? And some of you are like, why did he do that? You ever ask yourself that question? If he didn't have sin to be forgiven of, why did he get baptized? All right. Start in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Right from Genesis 1, we realize that there's these two elements which are linked throughout the Bible, and that is spirit, and what's interesting is Hebrew and Greek, that word spirit can also be wind, same word. And there's this connection of wind or spirit with water. So when God created, there's water, and then the wind came, the spirit came, and separated the waters and created dry land. And then we read about the new creation. Remember when you, are bapt uh, when you are born again? You're born again by water and spirit. Interesting. Yeah, because it signifies the new creation. It signifies the new covenant. And it goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Where God is creating and creating anew through water and spirit. It's amazing. Then we're going to fast forward to Genesis chapter 3. Everything goes south. Sin enters the world. Adam is, and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They are exiled. And things get even worse. They begin to spiral out of control. Genesis chapter 4, we have the first murder. And next thing you know, Genesis chapter 5, you see that every one of Adam's descendants dies. The end of every verse is, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Why? Because it's emphasizing that death is the consequence for sin. And humanity's ungodliness and sin so increases to the point that God says we have had enough. And so he threatens that there's going to be a worldwide flood and wicked humanity is going to be washed away under the judgment, condemnation waters that God brings through rain. 
except there's going to be eight people who are going to be saved in what's called the ark, Noah and his family. And so the wickedness of the people continues to increase. God sends the floodwaters of judgment and condemnation on wicked humanity. Only eight people are saved, and that is Noah and his family. And the next thing you read about, after 40 days, they send out some doves, but then the wind, the wind or the spirit comes, and it eventually blows away the waters, and dry land appears. And the ships settle, the ark settles, and then they crawl out, and they begin anew. And then you fast forward to the nation of Israel being in bondage for 400 years in Egypt and they are enslaved to the Egyptians until God raises up Moses. And when he raises up Moses, remember there's lots of plagues and stuff that happens. And then they finally come out to the edge of the promised land or uh, exiting Egypt on the way to the promised land. They're met by the, the barrier of the Red Sea. And what happens? Moses sends his staff into the water and the wind comes to the waters, separates the water, and then all of a sudden there is dry land. And the nation of Israel can walk across on the dry land to redemption. And the Egyptians try to follow. They're like, quick, let's go. And what happens? The judgment, condemnation waters crash in over them and they are killed. And I don't know why we sing this, but at VBS sometimes you'd sing the song, The Dead Man Float, anyways. Very morbid. And then you speed forward and you realize, wow, the nation of Israel is wandering in the desert for 40 years because Moses uh, was disobedient. And so he is uh, not allowed to come into the promised land. God raises up a man named Joshua. His name, Yeshua, means savior. And they stand on the edge of the promised land with the Jordan River before them. And they're ready to head into where God has promised that they're going to dwell. And in that moment, the priests go to step into the water. And the moment that they step into the water, the winds blow. And the water ceases. And they walk across on dry land. And what we see through this is God, through wind and water, through the spirit and water, is creating and newly creating. But he is also punishing and delivering through wind and water. Did you track with me, church? So some people get delivered through the water. Other people get condemned by the water. The water symbolizes God's judgment for sin. Now let's go to Jesus. He came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, that is John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John the Baptist consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Give you a little background. Uh, One of the reasons why John the Baptist was baptizing was because there was a lot of people in Palestine at that time who were not ethnically Jewish who did not identify with Moses in the cloud and the sea. And so when they became believers in Yahweh, Israel's God, they had to have some sort of identifying marker and it came in two ways. One is the Gentiles were baptized by Jewish people 
to symbolize going through the Red Sea because that's, that's one of the biggest moments in, in Israel's history. You have to be identified with the Red Sea, the Exodus, which is God's deliverance of his people but punishment of his enemies. And so you had to get baptized to symbolize coming through the judgment waters and being delivered by God. And the second thing you had to do was be circumcised. And so there's John the Baptist baptizing these folks, but he's also baptizing Jews. Now, why in the world would these ethnic Jews need to be baptized if they already identify with Moses, their covenant mediator? It's because the Jews at this time had failed to live up to their covenant expectations. They had failed to be obedient to God and they knew their own sin and so they wanted to start fresh. So they went into the baptism waters to symbolize I'm identifying with Moses and Moses is God and God, I'm sorry for my transgressions, please forgive me. And they would be baptized to symbolize all that. And this is the moment in which Jesus steps forward. You imagine this crowd on the banks of the Jordan River. I've been there. Um, Some of you have been there as well. It looks like milk chocolate, just flowing. And there's a whole bunch of people there being baptized by John the Baptist and out steps Jesus. And he says, John, I need to be baptized by you. John looks at him and goes, you crazy? I need to be baptized by you. John, you don't understand, I need to be baptized. It's fitting that I be baptized. That means it's appropriate. It's necessary. Why is it necessary? Verse 15 is to fulfill all righteousness. It's to fulfill what God has promised. And think about this for a moment. Jesus is going to fulfill what is promised. It's fitting. It's necessary. But does that mean that he broke the covenant? Does that mean he's sinful? This Jesus is perfect. This Jesus is sinless. This Jesus is spotless. This Jesus is the righteous son of God. So why in the world does he need to be baptized if he has no need for repentance? Why does he need to be baptized if he has no need for forgiveness? He doesn't need the water. So why does he go into the water? Jesus goes into the water not to identify symbolically with his own sin and therefore his own looming judgment. Jesus goes into the water to identify with our sin and our looming judgment. Jesus, in a dramatic way, what he's doing is symbolically stepping into the judgment waters of God where he goes into the waters and goes under the waters and the symbolism of God's judgment and condemnation swallow him whole. And he's in the water, under the wrath of God, dead. Jesus is publicly expressing to whoever is watching that it is his intention to take upon himself the judgment and the wrath of God that sinners deserve. Jesus has come to swallow up God's wrath, to drink it all in, to come under the judgment waters, to be fully and thoroughly condemned in order that you and I won't be. This is all done symbolically. And then if you notice when Jesus comes up out of the water, what happens? The heavens open up and we see the wind, the spirit. 
for there is the judgment of God, the wrath of God. But as Jesus emerges, I'm the dry land. I'm the way of deliverance. I'm the way that you get through. Follow me. The Holy Spirit descends in this moment, and not only that, but God the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God in that moment is affirming his overwhelming love of Jesus Christ. Jesus gets baptized. Water and Spirit, Trinity, God the Son taking our judgment, God the Spirit granting us the promises of God and God the Father affirming his love for us. I want you to imagine for a moment, you're there. (laughs) Imagine such a moment. And Jesus emerges out of the water. His hair is matted to his forehead. His beard is filled with glistening drops of water in the sunlight. His clothes are tightly against his chest and shoulders as he emerges up out of the water and he just looks. There's silence there. It's as if Jesus in that moment, dripping wet, waist deep in the Jordan River, he's saying, this is not for me. This is for you. I'm doing this for you. But I don't merely do it symbolically. I'm going to do it actually for you. I'm going to come underneath the judgment of God. I'm going to come underneath the wrath of God. And I'm going to drink it all. But I'm going to make a way of deliverance. And then that's what we see, Mark 10. The two disciples come to Jesus and they ask Jesus, can I sit at your left hand? Can I sit at your right? And Jesus tells them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And that cup is is an image from the Old Testament, the cup of wrath. Are you able to drink fully the wrath of God and live? No. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? In other words, are you able to be baptized under the judgment of God and emerge as the deliverer? No. No, you can't. You see, in the Jordan River, Jesus was baptized symbolically into our sins to identify with us and our weakness and our brokenness and our misery. Jesus is identifying with the judgment of God that we rightly deserve and the wrath of God that remains on all of us. But then he proceeds to go beyond symbolism to reality and it was on the cross that Jesus was really baptized into sin. And he was baptized into the judgment of God. And he was baptized into the waters of God's wrath. And he drank it all. Not a drop remains for those who are in Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the water has run dry. God's judgment has been satisfied. The wrath is no more. Now, on the third day, after Jesus was dead and buried, he rose from the dead. By the Spirit, God grants to all who believe in him new life in his name. 
So when you are baptized in the waters into Jesus' name, you are identifying with Jesus. As Jesus passed through the waters of God's judgment by your baptism, you are symbolically saying, I'm with Jesus and I also pass through the judgment of God. And as Jesus took upon God's wrath and satisfied it completely so that there is now dry land for which we can be delivered, we identify with that Jesus through our baptism as we emerge out of the water and we say, now the wrath of God has been satisfied. I follow Jesus on the dry land to God's promises which are secure for me in Christ Jesus. And we do this by faith, of course, but it's portrayed in baptism, of course. We take his life to be our own. We take his death to be our own. We take his resurrection to be our own. Repent, believe, be baptized. Because through your baptism, you acknowledge God's judgment on humanity. You say, basically, you're identifying with sinful humanity. You're saying, yes, I acknowledge. I'm wicked. I deserve God's judgment. I acknowledge that God's wrath is rightly upon me because I have sinned before the Lord. But simultaneously, as you emerge out of those baptism waters, you are declaring, proclaiming, announcing publicly, but I plead for my defense that all I have is Christ. He's enough for me. He has satisfied the wrath of God for me. He has died for me. Better than that, he's resurrected for me. His life is my life. Forgiveness he's promised is mine. I declare I'm with him. And so in that moment, brothers and sisters, your baptism is when God's seal of approval, in other words, his signature, that he doesn't just promise you forgiveness, but through your baptism, he guarantees it. Because the church who's standing there and the church who's watching you be baptized and the church who is approving of your baptism says, you're legit. You're legit. It's real. Your faith is real. It's really faith that you have. And to signify to the whole world, we're about to baptize you. And so this, the, the title of this sermon is A Baptizing Church. And what we mean by this is the local church is meant to be a baptizing church. The local church is meant to baptize legitimate believers who then identify with Jesus and his people, receive a new identity, are affirmed in their faith, marked off from the world, and called to walk in newness of life. So the baptizing church, what we do is we help believers to live a baptized life. Let's go back to Romans 3, verse 4. Or excuse me, Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The point of a baptizing church is to help disciples live a baptized life. Part of my responsibility and part of the pastors and elders' responsibility as delegated authorities by Christ Jesus himself 
to, in their authority, affirm people's faith in Christ through baptism, part of our responsibility is to then help them live a baptized life, to help them walk in newness of life, to help them understand that Christ's death is your death, his life is your life, kill sin and live to righteousness. God purchased that right for you. And so we help people do verse 11 of chapter six. We help you consider or think about or realize that you yourselves are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're here to help you do. And so what's amazing is as you remember your baptism, it's not merely that you remember your baptism, it's that by remembering your baptism, you are also remembering what your baptism points to. I'm secure in Christ. I'm his. He's mine. And I'm theirs. And they're mine. And there's great comfort in that. In 1559, people in France wrote what is called the French Reformed Church Confession. Here's how they describe baptism. It is a pledge of our adoption and a lasting witness that Jesus Christ will always be our justification and sanctification. And then the Belgic Confession in 1561 reads this, that baptism is how God nourishes and strengthens our faith. How is that? I don't know if you, as a Christian, if you're a Christian here, I know there's uh, some Christians who are not here, but if you're a Christian here today, I'm sure that you have experienced what I've experienced, which is there are days that are hard. There are days where your faith is tested. There are perhaps days where you encounter some form of doubt. There are days where you feel overwhelmed by your own sin or you feel overwhelmed by the sin of others. You feel like, I just don't know anymore. What will you do in those dark days? Where will you turn for encouragement and strengthening? What will you do? For many years, I've even given this uh, counsel to people. We have told people, you know what you should do is you should, if you're doubting or you're wondering if my faith is real, just go back to the day you believed in Jesus, the day you confessed your sins, the day that you prayed the sinner's prayer. Just go back to that day and just relive it and just know that that was real. And I've had people tell me to my face with tears in their eyes, but Pastor Phil, what if it wasn't real? What if it wasn't sincere? What if it was just an emotional high at camp? What if I was just pressured by people around me? I saw everyone else walking the aisle. I thought, man, I might as well. I don't want to be left out. And when we encourage people to put their confidence that they are truly saved and their assurance that they're truly saved in a moment in history in which they prayed a sinner's prayer or what have you, in essence what we're saying is your assurance is dependent upon how you felt inside. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but I don't always feel so good. And sometimes I don't even trust my emotions. So what I'm being told is trust your emotions, which we all know are not really trustworthy. And by trusting your untrustworthy emotions, you'll have confidence. No, I won't. (laughs) I'll be doubting more. So what do you do? I suggest a better way. Instead of turning to how you felt on a particular day, how you thought, 
Turn outside of yourself and turn to something more real. Turn to your baptism. You see, there was really a day in which you really did get waist deep into a bucket of water or into some living water or river or pool. You got into that water and you professed your faith and a whole bunch of people, the church were gathered and you were baptized. And you emerged out of that water, dripping wet, head to toe, everyone clapped. They knew at that moment, you are legit. So go back to that day when you profess and just realize you may deceive yourself, but you're not deceiving about 200 people that watched it. You're not deceiving the church who says, no, no, you're legit. We're not crazy. You may be crazy, but we're not crazy. We were there, we saw it, we affirmed it, we applauded it, we are behind you. You are a bona fide Christian. And when you go back and think about your baptism in that way, drenched head to toe, wet, all these people applauding, you have given credible evidence that God has renewed you through Christ. His promises have not failed. The church has authenticated it. We have given our stamp of approval. You are in grace. Martin Luther put it like this. We must regard our baptism and put it in such a way, put, you, put, to use, put it to use in such a way that we draw strength and comfort from it. For in the day when our sins and our conscience oppress us, we must say, I'm baptized. I've been baptized. I have the promise that I shall be saved and I have eternal life both in soul and body. When sin torments me, when Satan accuses me, he says, proclaim I am a baptized man. So that's what a baptizing church does. Comes alongside of you and helps the disciple live a baptized life. To walk in newness of life, to put to death sin, to live in righteousness. And lastly, let me say this. A true church is indeed a baptizing church. The Belgic Confession, 1561, again, I've read this a bunch. The true church can be recognized if it, has follow, if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. A baptizing church will help you as a disciple live the baptized life. And a baptizing church will promote Christian community. A baptizing church will say, for sure, we know these are Christians. We're not so sure about these folks. When you are baptized, you are publicly proclaiming, I'm with Jesus. His life, my life. His death, my death. His resurrection, my resurrection. He has given me as my new covenant mediator a new identity. And now I relate to him and my fellow baptized believers in a new way. I got their back, they got mine. And that creates a community where we say, I'm for you. I got you. 
and we encourage one another and exhort one another all the more as we, say the, we see the day drawing near. And so, brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you is if you are not yet baptized, be baptized. Let the church come alongside of you and help you to live a baptized life. And at our next baptism, may we as the church show up in between our services and give a rowdy applause because these men and women who are baptized have been interviewed, they've been vetted, they're legit. And so let's celebrate. If you're not yet a Christian today, I would encourage you, repent, believe, be baptized. The judgment waters of God are all over you. Your head is barely above water, but one day you're gonna sink all the way in and the wrath of God will consume you. And before that day happens, repent, believe, be baptized. And God will deliver you through that judgment through Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that you do this for our church. Lord, make us a church that is a baptizing church. That we look to one another for comfort and for help, for encouragement. But we also take it upon ourselves that our baptism is not merely a status, it is a responsibility. That we are not our own. We've been adopted into the family of God. We are sanctified, justified, and one day glorified. And God, you've asked us to help one another walk in newness of life. So I pray for those unbaptized. I pray, Lord, that they would see that what they need most in this moment, if they are reluctant, to openly declare publicly that they belong to you, the thing they need most right now is to be baptized, to make their faith public. Because we now know that baptism is a way of portraying and proclaiming the gospel. And Lord, those who have not yet believed, repented, and been baptized, I pray, Lord, that you would show them their need and they would turn from their sin, believe in Jesus, be baptized in his name. And so, Father, we lay these things before you asking to work among us for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name.